Welcome to the Not Sorry Art Podcast. I'm Sari Shrike, the artist and creator behind Not Sorry Art and Not Sorry Art School. I'm so excited to talk art and creativity with you. So grab a drink, grab a snack, and let's dive in. Hey y'all, welcome back to the Not Sorry Art Podcast. I'm Sari Shrike. Thank you for being here. Today's episode is a question and answer. This is a format that is near and dear to my heart. If you followed me a while on Instagram, you know that I love sitting down, spending a day answering y'all's questions. This is really helpful because I enjoy sort of introspecting on why I do something and trying to mine out the reasoning and repackage it in a way that is hopefully really helpful or insightful for you guys. Also, this is a format that is near and dear to my heart because I, gratitude for being able to be an artist as my vocation, the gratitude I have for that is never super far from my thoughts. And so being able to, you know, spend a little bit of time trying to help and, you know, provide resources and share answers and insight, hopefully, is always kind of a great way to sort of action that gratitude. So, I'm really grateful. I asked on Instagram some questions. I got some really good ones. So thank you for everyone who submitted those. And yeah, today we're going to answer some questions about productivity, galleries, some various other things. But yeah, if that sounds interesting to you, then let's just jump into the questions. So our first question was some form of how do you create time to make art? One question was, how do I paint faster? I'm a mom. I need to speed up the process due to limited time. The other question was, how do you stay disciplined with the time you're dedicating to painting? I'm a stay-at-home mom of a 16-month-old. And I think probably the most important thing to think about is why do you want to make more art? I know this is going to seem like kind of a silly question, but I think it's important to differentiate wanting to make art to, quote, prove that you're an artist versus wanting to make art to find your style or to be able to submit to a show in 2024. Like those are, I think, reasonable goals. But I want to first start by sort of dispelling this idea that if you're not actively working on art, you're not an artist, at least in my opinion, because I think art is both input and output, right? Input is things like going to a museum, finding something you're interested in and reading about it or watching a documentary on something that you're interested in or, you know, saving pins on Pinterest or, you know, anything that feels like you looking around and experiencing the world around you and that initial, oh, there's something to what I'm looking at and like writing it down or saving it or experiencing it. And so if you're in a season of life where you're watching young children or maybe taking care of aging parents or have some other thing that's occupying a lot of your time and you wish you were making art, but you're doing other work, I want to ask you to not really beat yourself up over that and ask yourself what you can do. And if all you can do is input, looking at art, going to a museum, you know, with your children or, you know, whatever it looks like to you, honor that and treat that with a lot of intentionality And, you know, I wouldn't worry so much if it's, if you're just not in a place to make art, it doesn't mean that you cease to be an artist there. Maybe your kids will get older. Maybe there is an end to the season. And if that's what you're grappling with, I would encourage you to just, you know, give yourself a kind of a little bit of a reprieve from this idea that you have to be making art and you have to be making art at this frequency to be a real artist. Okay, but let's say that we do have a very valid reason to want to be making art and we've examined our life circumstances and we do have the time, we just are having a hard time finding the motivation or XYZ. My other two pieces of advice are get your community involved 
or at least aware of what you're doing and your goal. And secondly, it would be self-love. So let me let me walk through the first one. So the analogy that I often think of here is when we think about someone, a new mom or whatever, who all of a sudden they want to prioritize their physical health and, you know, at the same time their mental health and they want to go, let's say, run a half marathon. And, you know, they tell their partner and they tell their family and anyone else who's part of their support system, if you're lucky enough to have that support system. And people, you know, you don't make money if you, most people, I mean, I guess some elite runners do, but most people don't make money off of running marathons, right? The whole goal of doing it is that, you know, you're valuing your your health, your time, your individuality, whatever, X, Y, Z. And culturally, we all sort of, value those things and we've had conversations about the merit of running a marathon or you know whatever various sport picking up intramural sports whatever it is and so I feel like it's not too crazy to think of a person asking their mom to like watch their kids a couple days a week so that they can go do long runs and I feel like there's some a bit of cultural precedent for that and whenever I think about our creative health I think that we just haven't had kind of the 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 running renaissance or the exercise renaissance that we had maybe in the middle of the middle to end of the last century in like the 70s I'm specifically thinking of where all of a sudden you know we we all said yeah our our physical health is important and even if it doesn't make money it's worth it to go exercise and we see recreational sports on the rise and you know this rise of workout culture which I know could be argued to be, you know, there's some nefarious aspects to that. But in general, we all kind of got to a collective place where we said, no, we we are going to value this, even if it doesn't bring in money, even if it doesn't seem initially like a helpful thing, even if you're not the best at it right away, like you don't have to be a good runner to go and get the value of running a half marathon, right? Okay. So my question is, and my advice, I suppose, in this capacity is communicating to your support system the value of your creative inner life. And I think it's harder because unlike running or exercise, we don't kind of have that cultural precedent where people are like, oh yeah, okay, well, you're not immediately the best in the world and you're not immediately going to make money, but this is valuable because your creative inner life and your mental health are valuable. So I would advise you to be an advocate. Again, if you have a support system, if that's available to you, to tell everyone hey, a couple days a week, Thursday and Tuesday afternoons, I'm going to spend two or three hours painting, writing, crocheting, whatever. Could you help me watch the kids? And I know that that's kind of a scary thing to do because we think, well, if you're not going to immediately make money off those things or if you're not immediately going to be the best at those things, that can be a really hard and scary thing to ask for. But I would encourage you to do it anyways and to really imagine yourself standing up for something that there we more culturally were aware was really healthy. All right, let's talk about the self-love part of the equation. And I know people might be rolling their eyes. I, I, I get it. Like it feels counterintuitive to think that you can self-love your way into motivation, but allow me to defend this perspective for a moment. So one thing I often think about is in movies or in literature, we often think of like this rock bottom moment. And it's usually this like dark, seedy, terrible place and our main character gazes into a mirror and they're so filled with anger or shame or self-loathing that it's because of those negative emotions that they turn their life around and I would argue that it's not the motivation to turn around and to change so dramatically to do a 180 isn't 
self-loathing or shame, but it's actually self-love. And the reason for this is, you know, there's kind of this idea out there where, you know, each emotion has a wavelength. It's a little woo-woo, but the idea that the lowest emotion is apathy and then one emotion above that is anger, I think is really insightful in the sense that apathy sort of looks around at the situation where you're not making art. You know, for me, I'm speaking of my personal experience having a year and a half of artist block and feeling a lot of shame and frustration around that. So I'll speak from that experience. But you sort of look around and you're like, oh, you went to school, you 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 had all these resources, you worked so hard and you're still not making art. What is wrong with you? But the apathy would look around and say, yep, you're not making art. You, this is, it's on brand for you, Sari. You know, you just, you can't commit to things. But anger tells us a slightly different story. Anger says, yep, this is the situation. You really want to be making art, but you're not. And you deserve better. Anger sort of whispers justice in our ear. <laughs> and, you know, anger is often associated with action. And I think that action isn't self-hatred. It's the realization that you deserve better. So for me, you know, I do remember feeling a lot of anger and it wasn't some dramatic <laughs> looking in a mirror moment necessarily. But when I did decide to do a little piece of art every day, it was a compassion that I deserve a practice. Even if the art I make isn't good, even if no one wants to look at my art, even if it's not the quality that I worked for in college, Sari deserves to have the space to make art on an almost daily basis. And I think it was that realization that came from a place of love. When you say you deserve something and you look around at your situation and you don't have it, the insight there comes from a bit of a dissonance with what you want and your surroundings. And so where I think the self-love comes from is acknowledging what you deserve and then asking yourself with love and compassion how can you get there? How can you get there realistically? And how do we tear down this negative self-talk about not being good enough, not being deserving of that time? And how do we use self-love and self-compassion to continue to motivate us into a practice that we do deserve? Okay, I know that was a long-winded answer. I just didn't want to give three short, you know, little quippets about setting a timer or, you know, just lower your expectation. Although I do think that that's part of the self-love part of the equation, but I didn't want to give you three little quippy answers or something brief because I think all of us have access. We can all Google how to increase productivity and we all can read, you know, those same kind of answers. Do a little bit every day, set a timer. And I think the reason why it's a hard thing to overcome is because a lot of times at the root of our issues with productivity is this feeling that we don't deserve a practice or that we're not going to live up to this practice. And I think if you can hone into sort of the deeper root of those things or not feeling supported by your community, then we stand a better chance at having a better practice because we fundamentally change what that practice should look like and the motivation of that practice being self-love as opposed to feeling like you need to quote, prove your worth or justify the financial burden of the time spent making the art, right? So I hope that was a helpful answer. I know that was long-winded, but it's things I think about and yeah, thank you for your question. Okay, another question I got, and I thought this is really good because I get some form of this most of the time when I do a Q&A, is do I use a projector and what do you think of using one? Um, yeah, so I have used a projector exactly one time <laughs> in my career, and I don't think there's anything wrong with it at all. Um, 
I used to be pretty strict to the idea that in in my own personal practice, I really valued my drawing skill because it, to be fair, because it was something that I was pretty weak at. And I think something to important to note about people's practices is is that there's a lot of different aspects to a creative practice, right? It's not as simple as just sitting down to paint. It can look that way, but for me, my painting practice scratches a bunch of different itches for me. Biggest thing is that it is a tool of communication. It helps me communicate my thoughts with myself and with people who look at it. And that's mostly why I do art. But I also do art because I enjoy the practice of getting better at something. I know we're talking a lot about running analogies, but it was my first love. And I think what it does for me is it it gets back to my long distance runner form of myself where I just genuinely enjoy the act of getting better and better at something, the skill aspect of thing. Okay. And we talk a little bit about where does skill and art meet? Where's the overlap? Are they the same thing? Not necessarily. I think art is this big huge umbrella and it covers a lot of different things and I think you can have skill to create art but I don't think that skill and art are definitely the same thing. Skill for me in my art again I personally like it enough said right but I also um, think that a part of my work talking about working class people and class issues skill is a layer of that conversation and for those reasons personally I prefer to hand draw. I I like, you know, occasionally I'll use a grid, but it's a grid on my canvas and not on my my reference. Like, I, I don't know. I'm not too into it, but it's not because it's not good or it's less moral or less valuable. All that to say, if you use a projector and it's helpful to you and you aren't interested in, in the skill, and that, that it's hard to say that without it sounding like a pejorative, but you really don't have to, right? I mean, do shop, put a urinal on a, on a stool. And he said that was art. And kind of from that moment on, <laughs> you know, the idea that you had to be this skilled mark maker, reference draftsman kind of went out the window. Like all of a sudden art is whatever you want it to be. And if, if you just want to get the image down on your canvas and you don't care how you get there, then no one else should care how you got there. If all your art is about the communication, which I believe most good art has good communication, then then great. Then who cares how you made it? You know, when we put a painting up in a gallery or we publish it to social media, you don't have to share how long it took you. Did you use a ruler? Did you use a projector? All of that is not, you know, pertinent information to the art, unless you want it to be, right? It's whatever, it kind of gets meta, but you don't have to worry about that stuff. And, you know, I think a lot of the anxiety comes from this, again, this really antiquated, silly idea that in order to be, quote, a real artist, you have to be really good at drawing or really good at painting. And that's not true at all. I think it can be helpful. I teach it for a living through Not Sorry Art School because I think it can be valuable, but it's not a precursor to art and it's certainly not a precursor to good art. So another question I got in various forms is, Talking about galleries, you know, how do I get into galleries? Do you do galleries? Um, can you talk us through how you figure out what galleries or exhibitions you want to be in? And man, I could do a whole episode about this. And perhaps if you guys want me to, I will. I would love to interview a gallerist actually and kind of go through this in depth. Let me start by saying a really good resource for this is a podcast called Hide or Practice. I'll link it in the show notes. 
it's an art curator and anyways it's a fantastic resource for if you want to figure out specifically kind of the gallery side of things as an emerging artist go there everything I'm going to say is kind of anecdotal so there's your concrete resource (laughs) we'll get back into my storytelling okay so for for a bit of context in the very first maybe the first half of my career I really didn't focus too much on galleries as in like other than my one emerging art gallery that I was in in Austin for years Austin Art Garage they're fantastic if you are in Austin go check them out but they sort of market themselves as like approachable accessible art emerging artists and they were wonderful but during the the pandemic I really sort of during that time didn't do much gallery anything (laughs) I mean, I have some galleries I look at, but there's a couple things to note. One, I was sort of at home with a kid. The other thing to note about participating in galleries is that it can be pretty time and labor and cost expensive to do galleries. So when I look at my whole career, the whole you know business side of my, my career, selling original work is actually a pretty small part of it and it's certainly the most unstable part of my income and then selling through galleries is even smaller (laughs) and even less predictable galleries are fantastic right they they serve an incredible role in the art ecosystem you can partner with a gallery and if you're a really good fit for each other You know, you can not only make money, but you can show your work and you can get some visibility and it can be a wonderful, super great symbiotic relationship. Also, um, galleries are at a place where they can sort of take a risk on smaller artists, artists that are maybe saying really important, but kind of subversive things that may not gel well with the general public, but that need to be said. And so galleries serve an important purpose in a lot of different ways but the truth of it is that you know galleries it's not always the easiest way to sort of sustain your art business you know the way I sort of look at it is finding a good gallery to represent you like full-time is kind of like finding a partner (laughs) and I think it's important to not rush into things to make sure that the way they run their business gels with you who they show gels with you sort of their mission statement gels with what you're doing I think it's important to be kind of selective and not jump in just because you want to start earning money and having collectors I think an important thing of being a modern artist in the age of social media and in the age of galleries is that you learn to sort of do the business thing on your own and be independent so you're not so beholden to galleries but also learn how to sort of play the gallery game too So the gallery game, first I want to put out a quick disclaimer to be careful of vanity galleries. Vanity galleries, and I think magazines can do the same thing, are places where you have to pay kind of a large sum of money. So not like 20, 30 bucks, but like 200, 300, 500, a thousand dollars to be able to show your artwork. And a lot of times the pitch is get all of these eyes on you, pay $500 for this booth or this spot in a magazine and you'll get lots of eyes. I would always say, be really careful of that. It can be a good fit into your business plan, but I think that they can have a kind of a predatoristic nature when it comes to newer artists who are going to be really flattered and really naive and not kind of understand how the art world works. If you're an established artist and maybe just getting eyes on you as part of your marketing, then it can be a good thing. But if you're new, I would just be really careful with vanity galleries. But yeah, real galleries, I think to play the gallery game, it's important to look for local 
local-ish, regional-ish galleries that they have other people on their roster that are either kind of where you're at or where you want to be in maybe five or ten years and whose artwork you kind of mesh with in some way. It doesn't have to match per se, but maybe it's, you know, contemporary or maybe it's regional art, whatever it is. It just kind of has to make sense. And then, you know, you make sure that you don't just bombard the galleries (laughs) with, you know, showing up one day with your portfolio. Usually they have a place on their website where you can submit art and they do calls. But I will say applying to galleries is a lot like applying for jobs. The statistics about people just getting in cold are really, really low. Like people, it's really hard to just not know anyone show up and get into a gallery, even if you feel like you're a good fit. Typically what you have to do is you have to know people. And so my next piece of advice would be to go to as many openings in person. And for full disclosure, this is where I usually fall off. I have young children and we have a lot of great things going for us, my partner and I, but childcare is something we tremendously struggle with. (laughs) And so it's, I don't do this as well. So I suppose do as I say, not as I do, but show up as much as you can in person, get to know people networking you know I guess you know don't be too corny about it but like as much as you can sort of rub elbows with people make friends and if this is a space you want to be in then you sort of have to go I believe that route as opposed to sort of just getting in I think it's like a lot of things in our culture where we sort of hope it's a meritocracy we hope that we can just make such good art that people love that all these doors will open for us when I find that particularly in the gallery space it's really who you know and there's other things too but it's just important to show up as much as you can speaking of who you know the last thing i'll say about this is there is also sort of a fun thing that i've become more interested in recently which is to sort of partner up with a handful of artists who you're all sort of making artwork that's really congruent with one another one of my contemporaries i really adore taylor lee nichols (laughs) their work is fantastic definitely check them out But, you know, for example, we're working together to pitch a show. A lot of our artwork really bounces off each other really well. And so something you can do is if you have some buddies, like you can find a way to exhibit your work. You can either pitch it to a gallery. Again, make sure you're going through the proper channels. You're not just bombarding people. But you can pitch it to galleries as an existing show. Or you can even find a space that isn't necessarily a gallery. So you can go find a business somewhere you can rent out maybe you have it up for one night maybe you have it up for a month and really kind of do a grassroots approach especially if you have the finances and the following to do something like that there's definitely a precedent for that and I've also seen artists who will have their own openings for their shows in their house and they put on their own exhibits and invite people over and you know you can find other ways to sort of fill your cv I mean I guess don't be don't lie about it if it's a you know make sure it's a real thing but there's lots of different ways you can really get creative but yeah sort of follow your intuition keep working make work that you're proud of meet people and definitely go check out that podcast that really great resource and I wish you the best of luck there's not a straight magic bullet to answering this question it's super individualized but that's kind of my my view on that Okay, the last big question, and then I'll do some rapid fire questions at the end. But the question is, how often and what do you do to rest and not get burnout? This is a great question. And I think the bulk of my answer is treat rest. And I would argue rest and play. I I think they're both important. 
treat them as important as you would any other aspect of your practice. So we're going back into that running analogy a bit here, but I think it's helpful. So in college, one thing that was really important to us is we would have our practice, you know, we do our five mile warm up, we do our drills, we'd cool down, we'd stretch, and then we'd shower. But usually most of us would try to fit in a nap in the day. I always had a hard time because college was really busy for me, but it was sort of this understanding that a nap was part of your training practice. And I know that especially in the more elite running world, rest and recovery and cross training are all equally as important to the actual exercise or like the the drills, the things that are like the really hard work. I think sometimes in our culture, we sort of view the only valuable work as the work that comes from an enormous amount of sacrifice and effort. And I think those things are helpful, right? A sacrifice and effort, especially if it's you know, effort that you're reaping the benefit off of, like you're not being exploited, is helpful and is fantastic. And we should all learn to have bandwidth for effort in our practice. But I also think having this view where effort is the only real work and everything else is less valuable can be really harmful too. So I think one way that this can show up for us is that we schedule in naps daily. So I have sort of this motto that I've had for years and it's if it doesn't happen daily, it doesn't get done. And that's not for everyone. Mostly that's for me because I have young children and I sort of live a life that feels like Groundhog Day because they require just an enormous amount of routine. And so my day, especially before my son started school, was really I didn't have any like weekend and and I don't mean that like good or bad. I think probably I could have used more weekends, but every day sort of was the same. And so incorporating work every day that's kind of initially how that mantra sort of started is like I don't have to spend six hours a day painting but if I spend two hours every single day that's still going to make progress right and I think with rest and play the same thing sort of applies so if I have a painting chunk in the morning you know maybe I, I go inside I make lunch I help clean up, I put my daughter down for her nap, and maybe the first half of her nap, I go lay down (laughs) and I rest my eyes, I read a book, I do something really, really relaxing. And then the other thing is that we incorporate play. I think sometimes, especially with a culture that requires as much productivity as ours, especially if you're someone who like is working a, a nine to five and you have children and you're trying to fit in time to make art, you know, everything can feel so go, go, go that we forget that we have we can build in time for play. And I think play is so incredibly important. Again, I could probably make a whole podcast on it, but the idea that you need to sit down and make time to do something joyous and fun and that doesn't feel like work, but play is part of of rest. So spending a day at an amusement park or whatever that looks like for you. Finding a way to include something that feels like play for you is just incredibly important. And play is always really tough because if you're really burnt out, then you don't want to schedule something else in your life. But I think it's really valuable nonetheless. So what what play looks like is going to be different for everyone, right? If you're making the kind of art where you're really inspired by like geological structures and you're, you're painting, you know, these minerals from your own backyard, maybe going to a local park. And spending the day looking at, sitting on rocks, taking pictures of rocks, collecting, I don't, I don't think you can collect rocks from parks, but you know, being in nature and, and playing in this really unstructured way is really helpful and is part of rest. So how do you not get burnt out? Admittedly, I'm probably not the best person <laughs> to give this advice, 
But to sum up your question, how do we incorporate rest? I think it's through scheduling it in, taking it incredibly seriously, and also not forgetting that play is a really important element to that equation as well. Okay, let's do some rapid fire questions. Do you have a favorite paint brand for bright colors? I do. So with acrylics, I'm a golden girl. I really like golden. And then for oil paints, for bright fluorescence, Gapka makes a really good line of neons and fluorescence. And I really like Holbin's um, aqua oils and they have a lot of really beautiful, vibrant colors. How do I handle and prepare for fluctuations in sales? Yes, this is a huge part of being an entrepreneur. My advice is to find as many legs as possible to your business, things that you enjoy and that are valuable. For me, when I was thinking about how I was gonna diversify my business, the first thing I thought of was teaching. I enjoy it, it fills up my cup. Is it hard work? Sure, of course. But it also is something that I love to do. It doesn't feel like I'm taking from what I'm doing and it feels like it helps with the rest of my business. So for me, that was an easy choice. I would ask you to sort of look inward. How else can you diversify? Is licensing interesting? Is being hired out to work on other people's work, whether that's illustrations or design work, is that interesting to you? Doing photography on the side? Find other ways that feel in line with what you're doing and that might help your main practice to incorporate other legs of your business in so that you don't find yourself in a position where you're depending on original sales only. So again, prints, stickers, licensing, there's all kinds of different things. Constantly be looking for ways that you can evolve and incorporate those into your business. Another question is, have you experienced any commission scams or people attempting to scam you? Of course. So one thing is make sure if you get a fishy email, first, don't click any weird links. I hope you guys already know that. (laughs) But second, Google it. Google it. There's almost always a Reddit or someone who has had a similar scam. You can put it into Google. You can put it into TikTok. They have a great search engine. Or you can put it into YouTube and literally write out some of the the copy from the email and see what happens. Because unfortunately, a lot of these scammers use the same (laughs) copy. It's always some form of, I'm wanting to spend $500 to $50,000 on my wife's anniversary gift. I would hope alarm bells go off with that. But if you're new and you feel a little bit put off, Google it, try to find out if someone else has seen this scam before and yeah, proceed with caution. Also, it's never it's never going to be offensive to someone reaching out in earnest to ask another set of questions to help you clarify. So if someone reaches out and say, hey, I want to hire you for a thousand dollar commission, you can always email them back and say, yeah, let, you know, tell me what, what you're curious about and what pieces of mine you want this to look like, right? Asking them for more answers. Scammers typically aren't going to put that much energy into it. And, you know, you can just keep asking questions before you, definitely before you hand over any money or do anything, you know, serious. Someone asked, what do you do with all your accumulated unsold art apart from painting over some? I don't paint over too much, but yeah, full disclosure, I have a storage unit. My house is pretty tiny. It's a little 1950s (laughs) house and we don't have a ton of space. So I have a lot of my smaller pieces in my house, in, in my print room. But for my larger pieces, I make sure to wrap the edges and protect them and store them in a storage unit. And that's what I do with them. The small ones sell pretty fast. 
Yes, the big ones don't, but I don't want to keep that from letting me paint large. So it's a, it's a cost that I'm willing to spend on that. But yeah, everyone's different. It doesn't mean you're not a good artist if you don't sell a lot of your work, especially if you're painting out of a place of integrity where you're not just painting what sells, but you're painting what you're interested in. I think the side effect of that is that you might end up with a lot of work. Um, and that's totally fine. Tips for shipping canvas paintings. This is one of those where I learned everything about shipping from YouTube University. I remember back when I started shipping things, I spent probably about a week watching video after video after video of people shipping their paintings and that was years ago I'm sure there's a lot more but yeah look into different ways to protect your edges I use cardboard edge protectors that really helps but yeah there's a lot of different ways to wrap your canvases always be safe and make sure you always factor in the full cost of shipping because shipping can be really expensive including the like packaging and stuff and you don't want the cost of that to eat away at your profit so just disclose all of that up front make sure on your website you properly calibrate for the cost of that and yeah good luck hopefully you find a really good system that works with your specific kind of artwork and finally do you have any tips for blending colors without the colors getting muddy yes my tip would be to play around with limited palettes so my short answer for this is basically that if you're finding yourself in a position where you continue to mix mud it's usually because you don't have a really well articulated understanding of how to mix neutrals so a lot of times when you find yourself unintentionally mixing neutrals it's because you're not familiar with how to get neutrals bear with me I know that seems like counterintuitive but in order to preserve bright colors you have to sort of intuitively know what other colors you're going to mix into that bright color that's immediately going to pull down the saturation or other colors that won't and the only way you know that is if you can blend your own neutrals so my short quick advice for you would be to find a much smaller palette like a three four color palette something like the Zorn palette a CMYK palette and practice that do a warm-up every day with just that limited palette see how that feels and before you know it you're going to have a better understanding of how to get those colors you can start adding more colors into your palette and hopefully that will help you to prevent mixing mud I know that helped me a ton Thank you so much to everyone who left questions. Thank you guys for listening to this episode. Hopefully you got something out of it and it was helpful in some capacity. I'm excited to do one of these in the future. Maybe every few months I can do a question and answer segment. So if that's something you're interested in, keep your eyes out on my Instagram for another question prompt in the future. Thank you. I hope that you have a great rest of your day and happy creating. I also wanted to say a huge thank you to everyone who's taken the time to write a review. The feedback is so incredibly helpful. This week, I wanted to say thank you in particular to Maria Bailey Art 67. That's M-A-R-I-A-B-A-I-L-E-Y-A-R-T 67. Thank you so much for your review. Thank you guys again. If you'd like to hear your handle read off at the end of next week's episode, make sure to leave a review. Let me know how I'm doing. And as always, thank you and happy creating.